Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Alice Gallaudet-Marais. Hi, everyone. I am Alice Gallo. I am an intensivist at Mayo Clinic, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. Jeffrey Dichter with us today at the Chess Journal podcast. He's going to be talking to me about his paper recently published at the Chess Journal about the Minnesota Medical Operations Coordination Center, a COVID-19 statewide response to ensure access to critical care and med surgical beds. Welcome, Dr. Dichter. Thank you, Alice. Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Just to start and make sure that our listeners uh, know who you are, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis, what a normal day looks like to you? Oh, certainly. Thank you. I'm an associate professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota. I'm a critical care doctor. I'm kind of an oddball in in some circles in that I don't practice pulmonary medicine. I practice just critical care medicine. And uh, most of my time is spent working clinically at the university hospital and at one of our large uh, community affiliates, Southdale Hospital. During the pandemic, which is where um, this the foundation of this article took place, one of the roles I had was the chairperson of the statewide critical care medicine working group. And that was set up under the statewide infrastructure uh, that was established during the pandemic and to respond to the pandemic. It represented, it was represented by the nine largest critical care programs in the state of Minnesota, which um, statistically compose about 68% of the ICU beds. So very large working group. And our mission as a working group was really to plan and, and compose critical care throughout the state um, to keep everybody together, um, working together and playing on the same uh, playing field, quote unquote, if you will. Early on, we recognized that we might have to, uh, during severe surges, be able to use each other's capacity and transfer patients around. And so we had started some preliminary work in March and April of 2020. Um, we had a staffing crisis in one of our trauma centers at the end of May in 2020, where they suddenly did not have enough nurses due to the to COVID-19 uh, surge in the peak that, that we were having at that time. And so we had a conference call. We pulled together all nine programs within just a few hours, and those, nine pa- those six patients were distributed across the state um, to other places within just a few hours that calendar day, that day. And that was the impetus to make us realize the urgency of getting a statewide coordination center set up. From that point forward, um, some of the choices that were ultimately made is that um, the University of Minnesota had an established center already that we utilized resources to utilize that to really form, you know, a one, one call option, if you will, for any hospital in the state of Minnesota to call to try and place their patients. The other thing we did as part of the, the statewide center it was termed the Critical Care Coordination Center, or C4, uh, as we called it. And C4 also set up the leadership of C4, established a a conference call, typically every day during the, the busiest periods, where all the hospitals 
throughout Minnesota, particularly the larger hospitals who had capacity, were invited to attend. And so there, a lot of times we would learn real time where the beds were, um, patient transfers could be facilitated at the call. And the other half of the time, the critical care center, C4 itself, would actually, if you will, cold call most of the hospitals throughout the state, particularly the larger ones with capacity, to find out where the beds were at any given moment in time. So that's kind of an overview of how the center got started and um, and how it was set up initially. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And I just just want just want to say something. I I don't think it's just critical care. Critical care is a pretty awesome specialty to to do and to work at. So I would not say just critical care. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and tell me, tell me, um, how was funding allocated? How did you how did you uh, tell the state like this is an important initiative? But I'm pulling. Um, uh, physicians and nurses from all of these large centers in the state. Uh, how how did you get funded? One of the things that um, I won't say unique to Minnesota, but certainly characteristic of Minnesota, is a, um, a history of um, spending a lot of time and resources prior to the pandemic in establishing disaster response um, infrastructure within the state. So our the statewide infrastructure term, the, the state health care coalition, uh, was composed of really mostly the larger systems throughout the state of Minnesota. It also included the Minnesota Hospital Association and their leadership, the state government, through the Minnesota Department of Health and the Commissioner of Health. And everybody really has really good functioning, um, effective relationships. And so it was really a teamwork through, if you will, state leadership to have the vision, to have the infrastructure. And then we we had to really, um, I won't say we had to sell the state on needing this infrastructure, this medical operations coordination center. I think by the point that we were putting it together, I think everybody recognized that it was needed. The funding came from the Minnesota Department of Health. Um, although we know how much that was, they have requested that we not share the specific amount, but they bore the financial responsibility for putting all this together. I'm glad. I'm glad that they realized how important this was. Uh, as someone who benefited from all of this organization that your group did, I, I'm very thankful for the state of Minnesota. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit more about the satisfaction survey. What prompted you guys to send it, and how how was how was the center received by by the end user? By the um, end of the first year, or towards the end of the first year, which would have been late winter, early spring of 2021. So probably, I don't remember the dates offhand, but probably about February or March of 2021 is when the survey went out. By that point, the um, the severe surge had begun to recede. We had a small surge in the spring of 2021, but we really wanted to find out how others were feeling about the center. It wasn't the center wasn't being shut down. In fact, it expanded in the spring of 21, 2021 by adding med surge in addition to critical care. But it was really um, an effort on leadership to try and understand exactly how people were feeling about the center. And so the, the survey went out. And what we learned was that I think for most of the uh, some of the, it was more about the operational needs of the center. And what we found was that most of the most of the participants were happy with the frequency of the conference calls. They felt that most of their needs were getting um, met in terms of being able to get patients placed. Um, and so it was really it, it was helpful. The one thing I always uh, the caveat 
that I share is that the, um, you know, this was done after the first year. The C4 was able to place virtually all patients during the first year. So the sense of satisfaction with it was one thing. A year later, uh, based on the data from our article, was a far more difficult surge the fall of 2021 to 2022. So the important caveat, it was done only after the first year, but not after the second year. Yeah, the sec the second year was was harder. And Jeff, walk us through walk us through how the workflow worked. So bed was needed. Um, what happened? Uh, C four was intended to be a, if you will, um, an available resource to hospitals. Hospitals during normal times all have their own referral patterns. Smaller hospitals tend to refer to different health systems or different of the larger hospitals. And so we didn't, we didn't want to replace that referral infrastructure, but we wanted a backup system so that as things became tighter, as the beds became, you know, fewer, that they had an access to be able to call to help them. And so the C4 staff, which was housed in the M Health Fairview Operations Center, it was an add-on to the center that was already there. They There were two pieces of this that were really important I alluded to earlier. Number one is they would call the hospitals in Minnesota, particularly the larger ones with ICU beds, So, and they would do that frequently during every day. So they had a sense of who had capacity, who may not. The other piece of it was they had a daily conference call with an electronic bed board that was developed by the Minnesota Hospital Association, um, where members would, it was an 11 o'clock call, 15 minutes beforehand, they would fill out the electronic spreadsheet. They would get on the call for 10 or 15 minutes, and they would look at what capacity was available in the state. And it also gave a chance for those on the call to really share their problems and for others to share solutions. So it was really kind of a support group. It was a support group as well. Those were the two pieces that were used to help place patients. From the point of view of a referring facility, Anybody could call C4 and ask them to help place a bed. Anyone could do that. And C4 would then match, once they had a bed, they would match the referring center who had the patient with the accepting center, and then the transfer would take place between um, those two centers. The referring center, of course, would arrange transport, and the accepting center would know the patient was coming, they would have received report, and would be ready for it. That's amazing. I love I love the fact that you said that it was support group as well. I can't I can't imagine how that portion of the of the C4 was how important that was. So thank you for providing that too. And share share with me and with our listeners like what were you able to do during the pandemic years? The first year, and I, I, I emphasize this, we were, um, there were two ways that people would typically interface with the center. They would interface with us and we would place their patient or they would interface with us and then they would find another resource and they would cancel the request. So there were several, many of the requests that were canceled the first year. Um, and many of the, but all during that first year, anybody that C4 was asked to place, they were able to successfully place and find an ICU bed. So the state had capacity during that first pandemic year for C4 to place every patient that they were asked to place and that they were able to complete. So that was really an important um, element. One of the graphs that we show in the paper is the time to placement and the median time to placement. And during the first pandemic year, the median time was typically up to probably maybe 30 to 40 minutes, rarely more than an hour. There was a broad 
spectrum, a broad, a broad space, uh, depending upon where in the surge that we were. But at least the median times were reasonably good. And most patients were placed certainly within several hours. That was the first pandemic year. The second pandemic year was far worse. The, the number of requests increased by a factor of 10. Our ability to place patients went from, you know, placing almost everybody down to probably 20 to 30% of both ICU and med surge, around 30%. So it was much more difficult the second year to find placement, and many patients were not able to be placed. The time to placement at times was many, many hours. Um, the median during December would 2021, which is the worst of the surge, was about 18 hours on on median to find a bed for, uh, you know, your typical patient. So the second year was much more difficult. One of the things I call out in the paper is that even though it was more difficult, we were still able to place about a 1,000 patients during that surge. Um, so it was that our percentage of success was less, but our ability to place patients was still um, significant for many patients. That was amazing. That was amazing what what you all could do. Um, I was I was impressed um, reading your paper, and also obviously I was I was part of the receiving end and the calling, um, so I could tell that that amazing things were happening. And tell me what is next for the Minnesota Medical Operations Coordination Center. What's next? We, uh, the Coordination Center was open on August 1st of 2020, and it was actually formally closed March 31st of 2022, so about 20 months later. Um, so we have the knowledge and understanding and infrastructure to be able to pull it up if we need to do it again. It's closed now, um, and so we're, we've gone back to our usual, um, you know, way we do things with the standard uh, hospitals using their own referral patterns, which works fine at this time as it does in most times when there's not a healthcare emergency. Um, the lesson, one of the important lessons we learned, um, is that although we were able to function as a state, we overlapped somewhat with the Dakotas and with Wisconsin as well. So we were able to place some of their patients and they were able to help us place some of our patients. Probably the most important lesson going forward is to be able to have multiple states be able to share coordination centers of this way to be able to share patients over regions. Um, that's something that we didn't try to any significant degree during this pandemic, but something I think most our state, as well as many other states' operation centers, similar operation centers, have recognized as something that would be helpful. That was probably the most important piece of this. That's great. And tell me, tell me like your top three or five tips if someone uh, wants to open a center like this um, in their state, hopefully we won't need it. But in case of need, like what were the the top three or five things that you've learned that were needed to open such a center? So in answering that question, um, having from a leadership perspective, we have a lot of experience with other state centers, including um, the state of Washington, Arizona, California, and Maryland in particular, as well as others. And I think that when we all get together and talk as, as leadership, probably the most important part is to really have the state leadership, both the political leadership and the medical leadership, really as people who buy in and endorse the concept and support it. So that's probably the most important thing that the the political leadership and the medical leadership all work together, the departments of health, the governor's office, 
and really the, especially the larger health systems really all participating. The personnel that participated throughout this were really hospital personnel from throughout the state, and they were supported by their hospital and health systems leadership, for instance. So it requires that as a probably the most important foundation. And the second is that it costs money. So there has to be a funding source, which is typically a state government that, that ends up you know, paying the bill, a government in general, mostly state governments, that would end up paying the bill to be able to do this. And third, it requires good choices of leadership people to both organize the center, um, to advocate for the center, and to work with, you know, the partners throughout the state, the healthcare um, organizations throughout the state, to help facilitate a, a well-running, um, streamlined function, center function, to be able to move patients back and forth. Those are probably the three most important elements um, for success. Amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, a last question, and again, just, just this is my own curiosity. Would you have done anything differently looking back and after putting all your successes on paper in this, in this article? Would, would you have done anything differently? I think that for us, the learning was in the learning, if you will. It's We had to start somewhere. We had to establish the center. We had to get used to using it. We had to adjust and change our processes as we went along. And I think for the most part, it went very successfully. Um, and I probably wouldn't change too much. The center was started uh, by two two people who I really want to recognize, Dr. Karen Baum, who's an expert, a hospitalist and an expert in operations, and Mary Jo Hubert, who was her administrative dyad, who started the center in August, uh, the summer, really, of 2020. So it really took leadership. Dr. Baum has a master's degree in, in health administration. She designed the database, which we utilize to be able to keep track of all the data that was published in this paper. Um, and to be able to analyze it. Um, if there's one thing that we all recognize was a limitation of this, although we had a lot of operational data, you know, how long it took to place patients, where the patients went, um, did they have COVID or did they not have COVID, a lot of more operational pieces. What we did not have was, if you will, medical outcomes. We didn't know, you know, did patients, you know, were, were was the mortality less because we were able to move patients? Were patients, you know, suffered less complications? How long did they stay in the hospital before they went home? Did they go home? So a lot of things that we as doctors and clinical people care about was data that we were not able to acquire. This was really done under a huge amount of duress, as, as I know everyone, all of us remember. Um, and we were lucky to have the leadership. We had to be able to design an administrative database that gave us what we have now. But that's one thing that as we look to the future and we do this again, if we do this again, is to try and design clinical outcomes as part of what we track, because that's what was missing. Hopefully, we don't need to do this again. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> uh, but uh, again, I want to thank you so much for one, putting all this data that you were able to collect into paper so our readers can also learn. And again, hopefully we don't need it, but if we need it, we have at least guidance to start. And thank you so much again for personally being a supportive system for me during uh, all our meetings that we had um, for CHEST and the COVID task force. And thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you, Alice. Thank you to you um, for having me on the podcast today. And also thank you to Chess for all that they do for all of us throughout our professional community. And also I'm grateful for all the people in Minnesota that I worked with. We have a really collaborative state um, and we're really all of us lucky to have each other. I completely agree. I always say that Minnesota is the U.S. best kept secret. So um, thank you so much to our listeners. I was joined today by Dr. Jeffrey Dichter, and we talked about his paper published uh, on the journal about the Minnesota Medical Operations Coordination Center, a COVID-19 statewide response to ensure access to critical care and med surgical beds. Thank you so much for listening.